All right, this is Places, everybody. Places, please, for the top of the show, we're at Places. Okay, well, welcome to Waiting for Places. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm waiting for Places. Right? <laughs> um, waiting to go back into the theater to wait for Places is <laughs> exciting. Yeah. I Do you, when you're about to call a show, like when you call places, do you just kind of like sit there for a second and just like take a breath? That's what this feels like. This feels like that moment where you're just kind of like, well, let me just gather myself for a second. Mm-hmm. Take a breath. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's after I have places and I'm like, now I have to start the show. Yeah. Okay. I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two minutes will go a long way. <laughs> yes. Um, well, Barry, thank you for joining me. What Will you tell me your life story? Where did you grow up? How did you choose stage management? What brought you to this gorgeous spring day in New Orleans? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I was, I was born in a little small town just outside of the world. It's not just outside. It's about two hours away um, called Lafayette, Louisiana. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's the heart and soul of what you think Louisiana is. <laughs> when you start thinking about little Cajun and Creole people running around, Lafayette is where it happens. Um, and uh, when I was two years old, I moved to New Orleans um, and I grew up here for the early part of my life. Hurricane Katrina uh, displaced me to Houston where I was for um, most of my uh, kind of like from uh, middle school up age. And then I decided to come back to New Orleans for college. I was here for um, all of university, except for a semester working at Walt Disney World as a performer. <laughs> what? Is that and, why you have all those Mickey ears in the background? Yeah, that's all my little mix. Yeah, those are my ears. I feel like I earned them. I'll give myself that little pat on the back. <laughs> and then um, came back, finished school, and then, um, I, I've pretty much been here other than a couple of sprints away to, to do some other work, but New Orleans is home, um, or at least it's it's remained home for so long. It's always that place that I look forward to coming home to. Um, yeah, when I was uh, very young, my, my parents would take me to live events, right? They'd take me to things like Disney on Ice or some type of live event, you know, when I started getting a little older, they take me to Cirque du Soleil shows, they take me to the circus, um, and they take me to all sorts of different live events that would come into either New Orleans or Lafayette or any of the surrounding areas. And I realized very early that I was kind of obsessed with live things. It was something about um, these foreign people, not foreign, but like not native to the lands that I live in. Um, coming to me, performing something, and then a, a day or a couple of days later, it's like they never existed. And, and you think about, I, I would sit and I'd think about all the different people, all the different things, all of the equipment, um, the trucks, I think about the trains, I think about you know the carts and everything. And I just, I wanted to make sense of it all. I wanted to understand how all of these things came together. And how old were you when you were having these philosophical ruminations about trucks? 
I'm talking like three or four years old. Okay. All right. <laughs> You're just like, I, I would just sit there and, you know, the circus is something that I'm sure many of us have had some type of major reckoning with in the last, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years about, you know, was this a good thing that I was supporting? <laughs> um, but it was definitely the, the greatest version of that thing to see elephants come off of a train and walk through town to the Superdome is just a sight that, you know, as a child, you would never imagine it happening. And it, it's happening right in front of you. And you're like, this is so beautiful. It's so incredible that these people came here and brought this to me, um, which is definitely the mindset that I was in as a child. Um, and it wasn't until I got the opportunity to, um, you know, do that several times that I started to not only look at the action that was happening on the floor, but I'd start to look up. You start to see the lights. And I remember very vividly, um, right before one of the shows was going to start, I saw these four guys. Um, they started climbing rope ladders. And I was like, who are those guys and what are they doing? <laughs> Why are they doing that? And these were the spotlight operators. And I think that was my first time recognizing, you know, a spotlight for the first time. And then as I got older, you know, I, I like to say I grew up in the dawn of YouTube um, because everything's on the internet now. Um, so I'd start watching shows on the internet and I'd start, you know, writing notes about all the things that I saw. I'd start noting, you know, when was the curtain opened? When was it closed? When did the lights turn on? When did they turn off? When did the music start? When did it turn off? Um, and if, are you a Disney fan at all? Yes. Okay, so Fantasmic. Fantasmic was yep. my big task. I used to sit at home every day after school and I'd watch Fantasmic over and over and over again. The same video even, same video every time. And one day I got the hankering <laughs> to just sit down and note at what time things happened, like the exact timestamp of when things happened. And I vividly remember one day my mother, she worked two jobs most of her life. Um, she left for like her second job on the weekend and I like flung myself out of bed, ran to my computer, put some headphones on, turned on the video and I called the show. And that was before I even knew what stage management was. That is so charming. <laughs> it's just such a delightful story and it warms the cockles of my heart. And I'm also like, you are so meant to be a stage manager right and i was like i thought i was meant to be a stage manager and i'm like nope i was i was falling in love with curly from oklahoma so i loved musicals but i had not gotten to the point where i was calling oklahoma and you sat down and just called phantasmic which for those who haven't seen it there's a lot going on in phantasmic there's lights and there's performers and there's pyro and there's i guess if in Disney World, there's a boat, or were you on a raft in Disneyland? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. And I I remember actually sitting down and, and watching both shows in comparison. And I think at some point in time during my, you know, middle school days, I did actually do two different shows. Like, I, I that wasn't my only time calling the show. And, you know, like, thank you for your kind words. It's, it, it does kind of feel like this thing chose me and not me choosing it. Um, that I just, you know, it's so fascinating because every time I approach a show now, whether that be a revival of something or a restaging of something or um, a new play, I try to put that much level of love into it, you know? 
understanding how it all comes together. Even though I know that, you know, production managers, technical directors, we all have a, a place in, in making sure that all of those things come together. And of course there, you know, I don't have to make sure that every performer is on that boat um, like I did in my imagination as a, as a middle schooler. Um, but I try to put that amount of understanding into the show and that much love to make sure that everything is not only, you know, within good show value, but so that everyone feels supported you know, it's those performers that, you know, they keep tripping over the same thing every time. Mm -hmm. But you as a stage manager, if you understand your show well enough and you know, oh, that person's going to run through here in a couple of minutes and that's not taped down or that's not, you know, uh, uh, glow taped or something, you know, if that isn't cushioned, they're going to run into that and they're going to get hurt. Or they've probably already done that and just haven't told me about it. How can we make sure that it's better next time? And, and I think as I've grown, that uh, that that middle schooler kind of mentality of calling a show and and having that level of detail has become kind of like, you know, something that I don't even have to think about anymore. It, it's all about how do I make sure that I support all those other things that people um, can't see or don't think about or don't feel supported in. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's when the work really becomes a challenge. It becomes hard. It feels like work then, um, which is very exciting to me. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell that you're not someone who just kind of wants to glide through the day. You definitely appreciate the challenge and you, you want the, you want to work on the hard shows, the ones right. that bring it you. on. Yeah. Bring it on. <laughs> I can't tell if that's a musical you want to work on or if that's a, a code I mean, of ethics. If anyone's listening, <laughs> <laughs> just look me up. <laughs> So you went to Disney in the middle of college and you were a performer. Yeah. Um, but considering that you wanted to call Fantasmic, did you try to convince the Disney, the Walt Disney Company that you should be? Let me tell you, I went into the Disney College program hoping and praying that I'd get the opportunity to do every last single job there was in entertainment possible. I went in, I was like, can I, can I sew something? Can I, uh, can I, you know, the props, where, where do we keep those? Can I, can I go through all that? <laughs> you know, can I, can I drive a float? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just like, how can I do all those things? But when you get there, it's, it's very clear. They're like, all right, you're, you're here to learn how to do this job really well. And, um, and, and through training and everything, I, I kind of started to realize that I wasn't necessarily going to get the opportunity to go and, um, and, and, and stage managed Fantasmic for whatever reason. Um, but I, you know, there was a person there. I remember when I got there, there was a person and they said, yeah, this is, this is the first time that we've ever had um, a, a, an entertainment management kind of intern when I was there. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. She's doing exactly what I want to do. Um, and she's the first person to get to do it. And it was very exciting to see her. I never got to meet her. I never, you know, or anything like that. Uh, it's such a big company that you see someone one time and you never see them again. Um, but I just remember being absolutely fascinated. The one opportunity that I did get to do that I will, will love forever and a day. Um, one day, I, so I was in, um, a show at um, Disney World. And one day I, I was there on a day off and I saw one of the managers and I just said, hello, how you doing? You know, you're doing okay. And he was like, yeah, so tell me a little bit about yourself. And I was like, 
you know, you know, I, I study stage management and they said, well, do you want to come up and, and you can see me call the show? And I genuinely, I just remember being like in shock. I don't think I said anything. And I was just kind of like <laughs> nodding my head with my mouth wide open. And, um, and I watched the show and I just watched the system that they created in order to make uh, this magical experience happen. And I just so fascinated and I, I made little mental notes of all the things that I wanted to do and all the things that I wanted to change. Um, little me, my, my middle school self was like, God, everything that you thought doesn't exist. It's something completely different. And it's something even more magical and remarkable than you ever imagined. And I think that that's, that was when I was like, I have to just keep going. And, and maybe one day I'll end up back there, <laughs> who knows? I was gonna ask you, would you go back to Disney if they offered you a real job? Yeah, I mean, I think sometime in the future, I think there's so many things that I wanna try um, before I get to that point. I think, um, I think that's definitely the place where I see myself kind of wanting to go as like the pinnacle of like me feeling at home in a theater or an entertainment period. I wanna travel, I wanna see the world, I wanna see, you know, everywhere through the lens of live entertainment and bring those smiles um, to faces and like that imagination of, you know, what, what it takes to make all of this happen to people across the world. You know, I wanna see those little kids who, who remind me of myself when they look up and say, wow, you know, or when they see someone climbing a ladder and they're wondering what the hell Dolly is that person doing up there? Yeah. And it seems to me like your heart seems to lie in spectacle because yeah. you started with the Disney on ice and the circuses. And one thing Disney does very well is spectacle. Spectacle. <laughs> I love going to Disney World because I'm like, you mean you give me a parade and a firework display every day? Yeah. Several times a day. Several times a day I get a parade and fireworks? <laughs> Yeah, I do love spectacle. You know, that was the hardest reckoning for me in college. Um, uh, you know, when you start to talk about uh, the dramatics, when you start to talk about theater, um, spectacle always is kind of that last thing. It's, it's, uh, it's always that thing that, you know, how it's something that we can add if it, if it helps us, um, but it's the first thing that we start to pull away from when we start, uh, looking at things like budgets and we start looking at things like um does this serve the play <laughs> um but i i think a lot of of, of theater and, and live entertainment for me is spectacle it's the wow factor it's it's what everyone always remembers you may not remember the story but you will remember how magical it felt to see confetti fall from the sky i love a good confetti cannon <laughs> too, especially when it goes off <laughs> I know. I feel like you and I enjoy the same types of things because yeah. I just, I get filled with joy and I'm like, they did it. There's a, there's a, there's a Disney world. I think it's like a frozen thing yeah. down in Hollywood studios where they snowed on the audience. Yes. Snow machines over the audience. And I was like, what is this magic? <laughs> I love all of those effects. I think, you know, it just, it adds to your heart. And you know, Disney is known for, you know, making you as an adult feel like a child again. Um, and I think that's where it starts. It starts with those little effects of those little things that you wouldn't expect. It makes it 
that much more real. Mm-hmm. Let's go see a show together. Let's go. Let's go. When Wicked comes our, to town. Yeah, let's get our Pfizer and go. <laughs> I'll just take my boat down the Mississippi. Please do. That's I love how you're like, that's a thing. Go do that. Go get on that Mark <laughs> Twain paddle boat. Let's do it. Take me back with you. <laughs> okay, so you've already admitted to me that you would work for Disney if you wanted to. But what keeps you in New Orleans. I know you said you grew up there, you went to college there. What is it about that town? Because New Orleans is also a little bit known for its spectacle. Mardi Gras is not subtle. Yeah. <laughs> That's something. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Uh, right? I they couldn't do floats and they made houses. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. This year was so interesting. Um, but yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. It's it's everything about, you know, let me tell you, I'll be the first to say New Orleans is like every city that you'll ever go to across the country. The things that set it apart from other things are the things that, uh, you know, the things that are in excess, you know, and, you know, I'm not much of, uh, of a party boy, but, you know, the fact that that's here, that people come here to party to celebrate special occasions um, with whatever that may be, it, it just adds a level of magic to it, you know? And then every day kind of becomes that. We, ha- we always have something to celebrate here, even if it's death, you know, let's celebrate it. Let's go out with a bang. Um, and I think, uh, I think that is the thing that I always remember when I'm away is the magic of, of living in the city. It's, it's the celebrations that you have at this restaurant or that restaurant or, you know, certain holidays. But especially Mardi Gras. No one, you don't want to come in from out of town for Mardi Gras. You want to, you want to be here before everything starts, and you want to be here afterwards as well, um, because it's just, it's beautiful to see everyone gear up for it. Um, How long here, is the gear up period? Is it like a month? Is it a week? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a nice long stretch. Um, I think parades start three to four weekends prior to Mardi Gras day, um, two to three, you know, probably about three to four. Um, and it starts with little parades. It starts with kind of like a walking parade through the French Quarter. And then all of a sudden um, you get a notice on your phone, this street's closed, 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 this street's closed. If you live in this area, walk to work. <laughs> um, and you're just like, okay. Got it. And all of a sudden, the season's here. Um, and you just, you, you, it's usually Thursday through um, the weekend and, and, and you go to a parade every night or two or three. And you catch some beads. Sometimes you just go out there just to watch or listen to the bands and things. Um, and then, uh, God, once you get to like a couple of days before Mardi Gras, you're all Mardi Gras out, but there's still, that's when all the really beautiful parades start. And it's just lights and feathers and beautiful gowns and beads and things flying towards your head that you have to dodge. God, it's so magical. <laughs> I'm so excited. I wish I wish it was next. It was um, Mardi Gras already again. So. <laughs> this year really sucked. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's absolutely fair. But then because New Orleans does have all these live events, Marty, the parades, but then you mentioned the live music. New Orleans is known for its jazz. Right. 
while you were in college, were you able to also work in the city or was your college pretty much like, no, we really want you to stay in our academic theater world? A little bit of both actually. Um, I got the opportunity while I was at Loyola to stage manage 10 university productions, um, whether those be for theater or dance. And um, while I was there, um, I became really close with, so we have a music industry program um, at Loyola, and we also have kind of like opera music, um, uh, that type of music program. So we have this performance hall that's run by uh, someone who's kind of in the world of like facilities under that blanket of music industry and, and dance and music and whatnot. Um, and when I started stage managing the ballets for the Department of Theater Arts and Dance, I just started showing up to the, the, to the, the performance halls, even though I wasn't working on anything. So I started learning from <laughs> the people who were, who were doing the live events, the, the jazz concerts or the opera or, um, you know, various people who would rent out the space for all types of events. I got the opportunity to, to work in kind of corporate uh, galas and whatnot, corporate events as well. Um, we hosted about a ballet competition once um, that I got to be a stage manager for just so much. And then, you know, you get those emails from someone who knows someone who knows someone that says, oh, hey, we really need some help with this or that or the other. And you're like, all right, well, I guess I can spare some time to come on over and, and, and work with you or learn from you, um, which was the most important thing for me during all of college. Um, and, and I think the department never kind of like smacked me on the wrist for it. They were always kind of like, all right, what'd you learn this week? <laughs> and I was always like, and they'd be like, oh, Barry, go sit down somewhere. <laughs> like, just, just go relax, take, put your feet up or something. And I was like, no, <laughs> let's go, let's go. Yes, I love that attitude of just always there's more to learn and there's more to do and that everything is worth learning. Yeah, um, it so is. And I, I, I hope that more people see that in, in um, university environments because I, I think we, we try to focus so much on, on what's happening in the moment that we have no forethought about what could come to us in the future or maybe, you know, what has happened in the past and how we got to where we are, you know, because I think a lot of us are trying to get rid of the past. We're like, ah, we can innovate, 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 but you can't innovate from, you know, 10. You have to innovate from zero to to 100 again. I think if you don't know what came in the past, you can't necessarily uh, create the future, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And it's actually a fantastic segue into talking about the We See You White American Theater demands, yeah. right? Because those demands are all about creating a future, what right. we want it to look like. But they, by def almost by definition, have to reference what was because right. that was unacceptable for so long, but how did we get to what was and how do we then change it sustainably for a future? Right. And I guess the question is like, the question is how are you planning to incorporate them? But like, 
it you personally do you know if the new orleans community is grappling with these questions if they're anticipating changes in the industry when they come back mm -hmm. i think to be really blunt about it i think the new orleans theater scene is very scared um i think that a lot of the companies are 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 worried about whether or not they're going to be able to do seasons in the future the arts community here really relies on people to be able to visit the city you know it's the people of new orleans don't really go to theater people come here from out of town they're like oh the art scene of new orleans they book to go see a play and that's where the tickets really are you know it's very similar to new york in that people in new york don't necessarily go to see shows it's the people who who are from you know michigan and california and idaho who go to new york to experience new york and see a broadway show um and since we haven't had that tourism i think we're all concerned as to whether or not theater is going to be you know we can afford to make theater a and then i think a lot of theaters a lot of arts community here in new orleans will be concerned about whether or not they can pay actors what they deserve and stage managers and designers and technicians, um, which I think was already a concern for many of these people. Um, and I think in seeing the demands, I think there that many communities, not just in New Orleans, but across the United States are, are, are getting really nervous. But I think the thing that they should be even more nervous about is if they don't live up to those demands. Um, and you know, to answer the question, I think. I, as a stage manager, have a great deal of responsibility on my shoulders. You know, my job is to make sure that that we get through this together as a group. And at the end of the night, that curtain comes down or whatever that curtain may be, whether it's the lights or, you know, just a bow, um, that everything safely comes together within this beautiful vision and everyone feels taken care of. You know, everything else is supplementary. Um, and, and I hope in looking at those demands that I push, um, to quote the color purple, I push the button um, and, and, and say, hey, um, you're not living up to, to some of the things that she promised. You're not living up to, to this and people don't feel supported. And I, as a stage manager, don't feel supported. How can we revisit this? How can we see this in a different way? I consider myself a very thoughtful person, um, which might be me tooting my own horn. So please, you know, give me a smack on the wrist if I'm if I'm doing too much of that. It's an interview about you. <laughs> but I, I, I try to be thoughtful and I try to be, I try to hear people out, you know, and I think we're living in a in a world where, you know, people don't wanna listen and people are afraid to speak. Um, I try to to be brave and not afraid to speak when it feels like something is harmful. And I try my best um, to listen to every side of whatever this argument is that someone um, is, is, is getting behind. Because I think then we can have a, a, a good dialogue about what is, what was, and what is to be. Um, so that we can look forward to a, a better and brighter future for all of us. I think people are trying to to appease people. I, I was um, actually talking with a friend before this because I was like, you know, it's something that's really been on my mind 
is making sure that uh, in one of the first couple of pages of the document, it says making sure that we we um, acknowledge the ancestral lands of uh, the Native Americans or you know the Native people to the lands that we we are working on, especially during the first rehearsal. And I said, you know, I've, I've been sitting in a lot of these uh, you know stage management meetings, and people are doing it, and it's very beautiful. But I want to make sure that we are doing the best version of that as possible. You know, I don't want to just say it just to say it. That doesn't seem right to me. What's the best version of that? What can we do as like a city, as a group of people? Do we connect with the Native American tribe that's still on this land and say, hi, we would love for you to come to our space so that we can show you honor and respect and, and show honor and respect to the land. We'll, we'll, what can we learn? What can we give? Um, to, to show respect and to show honor to the land um, and to show respect and honor to the people. Um, and and I, I, I always wonder, is this enough, you know? And it's not about me, it's not about me. It's about the people on the receiving end of this thing that we're giving. Does that make sense? It does, and I, I also share your concern because I certainly don't want land acknowledgements to become rote, as you said, yeah. to just become another word that we say that everyone's like, right, we're in first rehearsal. These are the 10 steps we get to before we, we have to go through before we get to read the play. Right. And I don't want to lose the importance of acknowledging that this, the land we are on was not originally inhabited by my ancestors. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I, I feel open saying my ancestors came from <laughs> Europe. <laughs> um, yeah I just I agree with you I think trying to find the best way and I think you just made some really great ideas where I was like how do I do that how do I what does that look like if we bring in someone from an, the native culture into right. our buildings into our spaces and how do we prevent that from becoming tokenism right how do we prevent it from just becoming again that thing you do on the first day of rehearsal exactly. devoid of meaning right it's it's constant work you know and i it's and i think we should always remember that everything can be a dialogue everything can be a conversation so all those questions that you just asked yourself you don't have to you can ask other people you can ask um you know you know even if you want to ask the land you know what is what is the right thing here what is, what is the best version of this? And how can I help, you know? How can I give back? Because um, it's, I, I don't think it's, it's a company. I don't think it's a show. It's we, the collective group of people that are coming together to put this work on. And I think we can't all have to do that because we signed a contract. We all have to collectively buy buy into that, you know? So I think having that conversation with everyone in the room and saying, hi, I would like to acknowledge this. If you would also like to acknowledge this, please come in. Let's do this now so that we are making sure that we are doing it intentionally and that we are doing it knowing that it's all about the honor and respect for, for the people or the place that we are honoring. Mm -hmm. I don't know, those are my thoughts. I want to I want to go back to something you said about listening and asking questions and how you try to be brave to speak up 
I have personally struggled with this in my career, and I was wondering how you kind of manage that tension where I feel like, and this may be different for a whole new generation, but I feel like mm. I learned stage managers don't speak, right? We mm. only, we really kind of keep our mouths shut and support the production and right, kind of like keep ourselves and muted. Muted is yeah. kind of a terrible word, right? But like, sure. <laughs> I don't necessarily have an artistic vision. I know that as a, as a collective, I think the opinion is changing on that. But also as a younger stage manager, I sometimes struggled more about being able to speak up to an older or more respected director or company as I'm still learning my craft and building my confidence in myself. And I guess I was wondering if you also str have struggled with that tension. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, so right out of college, I got the opportunity to be the production stage manager for a company. Um, and I learned so much um, so quickly um, about what it takes to, to put a show together. Like I, like I was saying earlier, you know, like that's what I believe the job of a stage manager is to put the show together. Even though we know that the stage manager is the vision, uh, the producer is <laughs> the pocketbook and um, you, know, you know, the big boss, the, the technical director is focused on making sure that all of the elements are coming together. A production manager, if we have it, is in charge of making sure that this production um, gets done. But it is our responsibility to make sure that this show comes together night after night on that stage. Um, and there was one particular show that I learned the most from. And it was that moment when I, my, I, I will admit, the first show that I did, I was terrified. I didn't feel like I knew what I was. I didn't feel like I, I knew what I was doing. And I was just, you know, kind of like, all right, I know how to put together a show because I've been doing this for a really long time, but am I doing it right outside of an educational environment? Um, and then I said, oh yeah, I know how to do this. This is fine. This, this is good. I know what I'm doing. Um, and then that, that show that I worked on that I, you know, I learned a lot from was a situation where I wasn't necessarily given the space um, by a particular director to do that work. I was essentially uh, expected, and, and I think it was hoped that um, I would be silent in the corner and that I would just be, you know, making sure that props uh, landed back on a table or um, that when someone called line, I was, you know, feeding them that line. And I think much of the work of a stage manager after, after I finished that show and have learned a lot after you know, doing more shows after that, my job is to make sure that everyone feels supported in, in the process. And I am kind of one of the only people that knows how all of this comes together. You know, you as a stage manager know um, the show. You set in every rehearsal, you know? You know how the show, is supposed to look, how it's supposed to feel, what the experience is of the, the performers, the technicians, uh, the audience, the director of that show happened, right? And then you have the whole technical side. You know every light cue. You see it right there on your page. You've sat through hours of technical rehearsals as you know things go whirling around you and as sounds are being played. And in many cases, the stage manager is the only person who can guide that ship, you know? And even if you do it in a silent way, even if, you know, you only do it in your reports or in your call sheets or in your little candid conversations with 
various people, performer, technician, director, producer, designer, whoever it may be, you are the person guiding that ship. Um, you guide the, the conversations that you have. You guide um, the, the rehearsal day, even if it's, even if it is giving those, you know, here's your five, here's your 10. Um, you're the only person who really has a glimpse of what is what was uh, and what is going to be. Um, and I think that's very important for stage managers to remember. So I, I think the reckoning that I have is, uh, that I've kind of found is, I know how this is supposed to work. Everyone else is just along for the ride. They're putting in their art, they're putting in their vision, like you mentioned earlier, you know, like we, we as stage managers don't necessarily have vision, but I mean, we, we, our job isn't to, to have the vision, but sometimes we have, to, we have to alter the vision in order to make it work or to make it more safe. Um, or if there's a particular issue, we have to create that contingency plan, you know? Um, so, so I think it's, it's having a really strong understanding of, of how it all comes together is the most important thing. Knowing everyone's job and knowing what every part of the puzzle is so that in the event that something goes wrong or someone doesn't know what they're doing, you can, you can manage. You can, you can take um, the bull by the horns and say, we're gonna go in this direction. You can keep trying to buck me off, <laughs> but this is where we're going. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna stay along for the ride and I hope that you stay along too. Yeah. Does that answer your question? I know I speak in weird. No, rounds. it does. And it's so lovely that I'm like, I really hope I grow up to be the stage manager that Barry would be proud of. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> don't do that. I'm like, I hope I meet his expectations. I'm such a dork. Please no. don't. <laughs> well, you don't. are a dork. You called fantastic <laughs> when you were in middle school. But so what have you been doing for the last year when when you haven't been able to practice your craft, or maybe you have, for all yeah, I know, no. you're producing uh, the Scottish play. I'm sorry, I can't even say yeah, it in my own no. house. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Um, I've been learning. Um, I sit at home and I do what I did back when I was in middle school and high school and college, where every single Broadway.com blog, every single Broadway World blog, every behind the scenes look, every musicals YouTube channel, every stage management book, every producing book, every technical director book, every rigging specialist book, every directing book, every acting book that I can get my hands on to at least thumb through or watch or experience. That's what I'm into right now. I'm doing a lot of thinking, writing down, um, I, I don't know if you do this, but I always write my first rehearsal speech um, that I give to everyone, just introducing myself and, and having a discussion about what that looks like and how to express to everyone what my job is and what my job is not. Um, and to make sure that everyone understands that I'm there to support them, not to hurt them. I think a lot of people see stage managers as like, you know, the principal. And that's not my job. I'm, I'm not the principal. I'm here to make sure that you feel supported and that everyone else is supported. And if you are getting in the way of me supporting this show and everyone involved in it, then that's when the conversation becomes, um, you know, kind of like the slap on the wrist or the, hey, let's have a conversation. Um, and, and what do those conversations look like? And what do those conversations look like depending on how I meet that person? Trying to be more thoughtful. Um, and, and some stage managers have been coming out with new books, which I think is really incredible. 
all these conversations that we're having through the Stage Management Association, sorry, Stage Managers Association, the Actors Equity is having conversations as well. We've been trying to be present for those as well to learn as much about this as possible and to make sure that I'm creating whatever version of that that I think I need to create in whatever environment that I'm working in. Yeah, that's a great use of our time. Um, and I think it it does tie back into you are kind of a giant nerd. Yes, nerdiest of the nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, but I'm also the same way. Uh, I actually learned how to state my first high school show. I was like, I'm going to be a stage manager. And my dad was like, here's Tom Kelly's book. And I was like, great. I didn't know what to put in a report, but Tom Kelly said I was supposed to make one. So I did. Yes. yes. I love that so much. Do you ever, I have a, a, a very small collection of very old stage management books. Um, and I read through them and I'm like, ah, <laughs> things have changed. Things have changed. One of the last people I'm going to interview for this pro pro project, project um, is Dr. Jennifer Sire, soon to be Dr. Jennifer Shire who is getting a PhD in the history of stage management in the United States in the 20th century, I think is her specificity. Love that. Yeah. We're all very excited and can't wait until it's published so we can all read oh, it. I'm so ready. Bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, I know we've already talked about how you are a nerd. What are you a nerd about that isn't calling shows and stage management? Oh, I don't know. I am starting to get incredibly obsessed with political drama. <laughs> Wait, you like know. real political drama or like Aaron Sorkin scripted political drama? All of it. <laughs> I, I'm, you know what I'm obsessed with? I'm obsessed with how <laughs> this always comes back to stage management, doesn't it, Barry? But like, I'm obsessed how there are people in this world that aren't stage managers that are doing stage management work. You know, I'm, I'm interested in how, you know, the various assistants of, you know, presidents and, you know, the White House and, and Congress and <laughs> the Supreme Court, you know, all throughout the world are doing the same type of work that we do inside of a theater and nobody really knows about it. They don't know about us, you know, they look at us as people who, um, you know, come in and we give them their, you know, their 30, their 15, their 10, their five, their two, and their go, um, but it's like the timeline has been going on for years. You guys just never heard us calling the numbers. Um, and I think there are so many people out there that are doing that same work. So I, I think that's been really fascinating to me. I've also been um, obsessed with aviation, um, obsessed with kind of like this, the, the way that, that planes get into the air. I've been kind of like watching a lot of like pilot blogs and just kind of like pilots talking about how they, pilot. <laughs> um, I'm obsessed with like watching how flight attendants, you know, how, that understanding of what service is um, and, and service and safety at the same time. I've been obsessed with that. I'm obsessed with the air traffic control because um, once again, it's very much like stage management. <laughs> it is. Would you want to get your pilot's, pilot's license? I feel like I would, um, I would love that. I'm Absolutely, absolutely terrified of small planes, big planes, massive planes. I am like, no problem. You just got to get that beast 
rolling down the runway, get enough wind under those wings and let's fly. But when it comes to small planes, I just, I have a fear that like, it's just so kind of like, it, it just moves in a different way. It just, it, all the safety features aren't there. It's all you. And I'm just kind of like, nope, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> so I was like, maybe I'll, you know, if I have a couple more years if, uh, if stage management, <laughs> if for some stupid ungodly reason, stage management uh, fails me, I can always become an air traffic Yes. <laughs> I think it's so interesting because I what part of what comforts me during tech is that, yes, we're keeping everyone safe and especially with automation. Right. We're very careful about it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, most of what I do is help people play pretend and yeah. that I can always just stop the show and yeah. we'll restart and yes. we can go back. And if you don't get it right the first time, we'll do it again. Yeah. No pressure. So I'm always like, oh, thank goodness I don't work for NASA. Yes. Right? Like it doesn't have to work the first time because there isn't a live human being being shot into the vacuum of space. That's true. That and I think it's really true. interesting that you're like, I really love that what we do is we, we're so safe and we're support. So I'm going to go do that where people could actually die. If I <laughs> isn't that ridiculous? I'm <laughs> dark. I'm you're like, I bad. will take more pressure, please. Yeah, I, at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we just didn't know what was going on, I was looking into every job that felt like stage management that I could do during this pandemic. I thought about being a 911 operator. Dear God, I started having dreams. Um, <laughs> it was not good. I was like, ah, air traffic control. I feel like I, I looked into it and I was like, ah, I have to go back to school to do this. <laughs> um, and just like, so, so I landed a job back at my old university. So um, I am currently kind of an administrative assistant in an office and I answer the phones and I help people solve their problems, which is, it feels the closest version of this thing as possible. And I'm, I'm absolutely loving it, but very excited to get back out there. Yeah, I 100% agree. What brings you joy? Mm. Away from stage management, if you can. I know stage management brings you joy. <laughs> Um, I know confetti cannons make your heart light up. Yeah. Something that gives me joy. When things just seem so smooth. Um, when, uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe this. Wow, this is so dorky. But like I ride the streetcar to work every day. Um, and it's when I walk outside and the streetcar's pulling up at the same time and I like land there. And it's beautiful when uh, the operator opens the doors as the streetcar's still rolling and it just kind of lands right when the doors open at the, just the perfect time. That gives me a lot of joy. But um, the other thing that gives me joy is, is having some time to really talk to friends and family and fellow stage managers like you making new friends. Um, and just, you know, like, I feel like as, as theater people, we're, we've been locked in a box for so long that like now we're like seeing what the world looks like outside of it. And I, I think, you know, I'm getting an opportunity to experience nature in a different way, something that I've never really done um, and kind of adventure. Um, so that's been giving me a lot of joy. What adventures? Is it just is it just going out and going on a hike or I don't know, can you row yeah, Lake Ponchard Train? Did no, I even say no. that right? Ponchard Train, yeah. Ponchard Train. <laughs> I, um, okay, so sorry to dork out a little bit more. I bought this book. It's Walking New Orleans. I Ooh. love walking. Um, and throughout the book, there are different walks that you can do. 
um, around different parts of the city and it has little notes. It tells you walk one block to Coliseum Street and turn right at 2425 Coliseum is the Joseph Merrick Jones house, home of actor John Goodman and the former home of Nine Inch Nails singer Trent and I'm just like I love this I love walking around with this book and just being like ah that's what this is because it's just such useless trivia but you're taking I love that you're taking advantage and you're being a tourist in your own town yeah I think we all need to do that I think it's so important because you could live a place your whole life and know absolutely so yeah, I'm all about this. This gives me a lot of joy. I love those those walks. <laughs> yeah, in your in your eternal summer down there, it's fine. I'm not jealous. <laughs> I'm swimming in humidity. <laughs> swimming in humidity <laughs> and mosquitoes. And mosquitoes. Yeah, nice big bite. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sharing this last hour with me, Barry. It is it has brought me joy. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Places, please. We're at places for the top of the show. Here we go. This was the 11th episode of Waiting for Places, a podcast highlighting stage managers living and working in the central region of the United States. Thank you for listening. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you listen to it. It will help other stage managers find it. Also make sure to click subscribe so you can get new episodes every Friday through July 9th. This podcast was presented by Ethical Rioting Productions. I am your host, Katrina Herman. This week on Waiting for Places, you heard from Barry James Ballard. The stage manager calling places was Mandisa Reed. This episode was edited by Katrina Herman with graphic design by Nicholas B. Paluha. A huge thank you to Morgan Zupanski, Chris Laporte, and the rest of the Waiting for Places think tank, Fredo Aguilar, Caitlin Boddy, Mary Hungerford, and Jacqueline Zaldana. Stand by for the next episode. All right, house is ours. Lights, are you with me? Sound, are you with me? All right, we still have places backstage. All right, have a good show, everybody. Here we go.